everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are excited to be joined by Catherine Stevens. She's actually a former colleague of ours who has gone off and started her own thing. It is called the Center on Child and Family Policy, and she is an early childhood expert. And we are going to talk about all things early childhood today, beginning with a new study out of Tennessee that suggests that maybe pre-K, universal pre-K anyway, is not all that's cracked up to be. So welcome, Catherine. And can you tell us a little bit about the study? Hi, Catherine. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. So yes, the Tennessee Voluntary Pre-K Research Project has been going on now for a little over a decade. It started with two groups of pre-K children in 2009, 2010, and 2010 through 2011. So I'm going to explain the study in a minute, but I'll, but the researchers have been following uh, these children who were in pre-K, as I said, about 12 years ago. They've just now completed sixth grade. So the most recent publication from, from, their, from their study is reporting on their findings from these children they've been tracking since pre-K as they finished um, uh, sixth grade. So the way these, this, this study is an ex- a very unusual study in um, early childhood research because it's of exceptionally high quality. It's hard to do really rigorous research in, the, in real world environments. And these researchers have done an extraordinary job of, of conducting a really rigorous study. It's what's called a randomized controlled trial, which is sort of the gold standard of research. And what that means is you get two groups of, of, of people who are the same in every way, except for the one variable that you are studying. So in this case, the one variable that we're interested in is that the child goes to, to, to pre-K. So what they did is they uh, they had a limited number of pre-K spots. So there were more parents who wanted to get their children into pre-K than there were spaces for those children. So with so they they took they they were only able to give spots to about two-thirds of the kids who were trying to get in. So they did that randomly. So we know that all the parents were motivated essentially. Correct which I want us to talk more about in a, in a few minutes. So there were about 3,000 kids total, a little over 1,800 of these children got into pre-K and went to pre-K, and a little over 1,100 did, just didn't get in. So their parents were disappointed. Their parents had to find something else to, to do with their kids, but those kids were not in pre-K. So what the researchers found initially is actually consistent with other uh, other a short-term effect research, which is that at the time that the children were finishing pre-K, right after the end of the pre-K year, when they were compared at kindergarten entry to children who had not gone to pre-K, they did in fact do better. Not a lot better, but a little better. As time has gone on, however, the children who did not attend pre-K caught up And now at the end of sixth grade, the children who did not go to pre-K were doing better than the children who did go to pre-K. 
both in terms of academics and in terms of behavior issues. The difference between the two groups is not enormous. It's not like going to pre-K ruined your life, but the trend has been clear over the past six years. There's no evident benefit to having gone to pre-K. The only thing that's in evidence is that it's having a slightly negative effect. So can you talk, just, just talk about the, that negative effect? I mean, what, what, yeah. is, what is going on there? Like, what, what are they doing in pre-K that might be having this negative effect? I think that's why, you know, I read a lot of skepticism about this study. And as you said, it is very well constructed. It's the gold standard for this kind of study. But a lot of the skepticism was like, well, how, how could it be bad? And how widespread was the badness? Like of the eleven hundred kids that didn't go in, like how how yeah how widespread was this? Because it's the narrative sounds like all of the kids that did attend pre K performed worse over time. But is that like how much of that is actually true? Well, that's an excellent question, Ian. But that's an excellent question, not just about this study. That's an excellent question about all this kind of research. Period. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a it's a great shortcoming of this sort of research, right? What's reported are averages. And if you wanted to understand in a more granular way, which kids did this work for, which kids did this not work for, and why, that ends up being a lot more useful. On the other hand, when we're talking about, for example, in Build Back Better, investing literally billions of dollars in universal pre-K, none of that nuance is included, right? And so in terms of actually starting schools, school systems on the ground wanting to do a better job, they need to be doing a lot more of what you just described. In terms of research that informs sort of large policy directions, um, I think averages really have to suffice because that's the that's the level that 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 this stuff is, that these policies are implemented on. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. The, the, the danger, though, is that if you look at the 1,800 kids and let's say the narratives that the kids that went to pre-K didn't do as well. But as you say, if we looked at it in a granular fashion, like let's say you had a scatter plot or distribution where you had all 1,800 kids represented, there's probably some percentage of that group that's doing better. And that there's some percent that's some in the lower part of the distribution that's doing worse. And Correct. if you were to study the kids in the upper part of the distribution, you might find that they were successful, but it's not necessarily because of pre-K. It could be part of a, any other number of factors. Correct. And but but the onus, but one can walk away with the conclusion that it's pre-K that's the culprit. Well, I guess it's just the point is you've got this group of kids. And they're all essentially the same. And that, as Naomi said, they all have parents that were motivated to get them into pre-K, were trying to get them into pre-K. So you're comparing apples to apples in that sense. And you're just saying that in general, on average, this was not helpful. A good analogy for this, Ian, is, is frankly in medicine. So when you're when 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 you have a, 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 an illness or some medical condition, and they tell you, take this drug, there's a big distribution 
on who it helps and how much it helps, right? But you, but, but you need some general principles to start with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so th- what this tells us is this is not precise. You know, there's this new phenomenon called precision medicine, which is is trying to tailor medical treatments to the actual person's specific cells, yeah. which will obviously be much more effective and will get us away from these sort of vaguely meaningful averages. However, if you are talking, for example, about spending billions of dollars to implement pre-K across the country, averages do matter, right? Is this on, is this generally speaking something that on average is making things better or on average making things worse? The other things I'll say, Ian, is that when you're thinking through what kind of Naomi's question, like what's going on? What we want to look at partly is like, what are parents doing instead? I mean, what, like, when you're exactly. thinking about what are the alternatives to this? It's not like either kids sit at home and stare at a wall or they go to pre-K. That's right. And I think the, the, other, the other thing that's important is for us to take what we know about, for example, how children develop, what we would predict, and then see, is that consistent or inconsistent with these this findings of this particular study? Does it make, does it, does it make sense? And what we know about young children is that they require for healthy development for the first four to five years of their lives is consistent, familiar, loving, small group, one-on-one relationships with, um, with, with, with people they're very close to. That is what, 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 uh, all developmental science tells us young children need. So that so the conditions that we what we know about how young children develop, we can then look at a pre-K classroom in a public school, and we can see that the conditions that we already know are what is conducive to young children's healthy development. Those actually don't mostly exist in a pre-K classroom. There is nothing in child development that says that optimal development occurs in a group of 19 other four-year-olds. That's not how human beings develop in in an environment where you you essentially get no one-on-one time with, with any adult, no interactions with any other older children, right? Just four-year-olds in, and I don't know if you guys remember going to school when you were little, but in an environment that can feel fairly intimidating, not familiar, not cozy. So mm-hmm. those aren't the conditions that we think of as facilitating development. So that's that that is the reason why I think rather than being skeptical of this study, we could say, well, that actually is consistent with what we with what we know. Some children, you guys both have kids, children are very, very different. Some children will will be will do very well some four-year-olds could do very well in a group of four-year-olds if if given a, a good program they like going there they think it's exciting they like hanging out with other four-year-olds there are a lot of four-year-olds who for whom that will will be overwhelming and stressful so and to your point about variation there's variation among children uh, I think among four-year-olds, fewer four-year-olds just think it's really fun to go all day, every day to this strange place 
that's not at home with this large group of straight with of children. Um, there are some four-year-olds who will thrive in that environment. I think it's probably not what's best for most four-year-olds, frankly. Mm, interesting. I mean, just philosophically, I mean, that's very helpful, Catherine. Philosoph- so I used to run schools, elementary and middle schools, and, you know, you could have an incredible third grade class and the teachers of that grade do incredibly well. And then fourth grade, not so much, right? How much, like, do you think it's fair to say to the, you know, that third grade teacher, well, you know, your results with the the kids you had in your class haven't really sustained, right? Like you would, how much would you put the onus on the third grade teacher for the fourth grade outcomes in the same way how much should we put the onus on pre-K for these kids who now you're measuring in sixth grade and so much has transpired. I'm still struggling to see that connection when there's so, as we, as we're talking about so many other factors that drive that continued success. Right. Well, so the question, Ian, I think is, is not who should get the blame. The question is when we're trying to improve child outcomes is Sending children to school when they're four or when they're three instead of five, our best bet. That is the question. And I don't think we have any reason to think that sending children to school when they're four or three instead of five is, 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 is going in the right direction. So one of the things I think is really important for us to remember in this, we are so focused on school in our society. We, we have come, and this is really since the, the, the night, the midnight, and it was the mid 19th, it was the 1960s. It was Lyndon B. Johnson who introduced this, the idea that the public schools are the best opportunity, mobility, anti-poverty program. That was a new idea in the 1960s. That was, that, that was when federal uh, spending on, 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 on K-12, uh, which was actually more first to 12 at that point, um, started to increase. Um, spending, as you guys know, on K-12 has has increased dramatically since then. And we've become so accustomed to thinking of human development, early human development, the first 18, 20 years of human development occurring through school. Now that we are understanding that early childhood is so important, I think our minds are just naturally thinking more school. And what we fail to realize is that school makes sense for say third graders. In a way, they're at a very different developmental stage. It makes sense for third graders in a way that it does not make sense for four-year-olds. And if you think about the animal kingdom, you think about the way young animals behave. Think of monkeys. A baby monkey is born. It clings to its mother. It goes for a long period where it refuses to leave the mother. Then it will spend little periods where it goes like two inches away and then comes right back. It's not until a particular age that a a young monkey doesn't want to hang out with the mother anymore. The the young monkey wants to run off and play with other young monkeys, right? So that is a develop, that's just a developmental fact. And, And what we're failing to understand is that our original idea of school, which was children started when they were six or seven. They were at that point in the olden days able to get there themselves. Their 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 sort of their 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 early development 
was done. They were independent. They could go off to school to learn these concrete skills and uh, uh, and 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 you know develop social relationships with other children. But when we started the idea of public school, it was six or 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 seven. And as a matter of fact, it was it was at the beginning of the 20th century. There were a number of states that had their mandatory um, entry was not until eight. Because people had this idea that this particular institution did not meet all developmental needs, right? It had a a specific purpose. And what we've done is we have just expanded our idea of what this purpose should be. We've expanded it beyond what it can accomplish in K-12. And now we're just expanding it to younger children where I think it it, it has the possibility of, of, of being actually harmful. There's no reason that we need to pit, we need to sort of put the peg of, of development into the whole of school. There's other ways that we can support human development besides school. And with young children, we need to be focused on those other ways. Well, and of course, the that other way is strong families, right? I mean, it, it, you, you make such yes. a powerful point that School was designed to sort of the the baton was passed at age five or six because the assumption and a good one back in the early 1900s when you had non-marital birth rates of probably two percent or three percent, all kids were born into married two parent households, that that's where the human development was happening. So right. are we make are we making a huge mistake by continuing what you're just describing, this encroachment? of government now lower and lower when that's not actually what the the school institution is designed for. And we're not focusing enough attention on the structure and stability of of the families that kids are being born into. Well, and a lot of the focus of the early childhood education is really, I think, implicitly on making up for what is not going on at home. I mean, that's kind of the... It's it's the you know, these parents, there's a there's a book I just finished reviewing called The Parent Trap, which, you know, talks about all of these skills that parents don't have that they can't instill, that they don't know enough to instill in their children. I mean, it's not a great review that I give the book. I'll I'll give you a little heads up there. But I mean, it's it's sort of, uh, you know, and the answer to all of this is just, you know, getting kids, you know, in these programs earlier and earlier so that we make sure that they have all these skills and parents can outsource, in the author's words, so much of this um, this work, this skill building for kids, um, which we think of as like normal childhood development to the experts. Um, exactly. And, oh, and my there's goodness. No, there's no set. <laughs> you write that down. And there's just there's no sense that, first of all, that, you know, parents like in a strong family don't have to like, you know, have a graduate degree in order to accomplish um, the things that kids need to develop, the things that Catherine was talking about, like, you know, just the the secure attachment and the nurturing, like all of that that leads to normal human and monkey development. But instead, like, let's just put them in these places as soon as possible. And that will make up for the development gaps that we're seeing in kids. Um, So I think you're right. We're not placing enough emphasis on like on the family's potential here. But I think you're getting a lot of voices in the policy world who are now like, oh, yes, these kids are at an extreme disadvantage. And the answer is to put them in school from morning till night. 
And this, to me, it actually constitutes a dangerous trend. It, 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 exactly what you've just described, Naomi, this idea that not only can these schools or school-like institutions support children's development, that they may even be better. And I see this coming from a couple of places. I think I see it coming from our sort of, you know, our sort of reverence for experts, right? In our society, that, that we just have this idea that, 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 that we need experts for everything. I also see it as arising from some wishful thinking. It, if you, it, on the part of, 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 of parents, people have their lives, they have children. Um, it used to be that women, women's lives, whatever they had been before they had children changed radically. That now is not always the case. Both men and women have children and, and want to expect to sort of go on with their normal lives. Women kind of, that's always been the case for men, um, that, that, they're, that, they, that their, their careers, whatever they were doing was not transformed when they had children. And that's something that now both men and women expect. Okay, that makes perfect sense from the point of view of women. Naomi, you and I have, have careers, right? This, is, this makes perfect sense. However, it leaves a gap. That's just the reality of it. It leaves a gap of, of how we are, are developing children. And people would like to think that that gap can be filled just fine, as you said, by outsourcing it. We have no evidence that's correct. And um, it, 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 it is a, um, there's actually, this has happened in Sweden. I don't know if you, if you guys remember, I did a, a, a webinar on this about a year ago um, called The Unintended Consequences of Universal Childcare Lessons from Sweden. So they are maybe 20 years ahead of us. And, and they implemented universal preschool policies that it gave every child in Sweden um, a spot in a preschool, sort of pre-K, childcare, whatever it is, but a preschool starting at age one. They combine that with very generous parental leave policies. So parents were able to start in Sweden are able to stay home with their with their baby until the baby turns one. So that's hugely valuable. What's really interesting is that. The culture in Sweden has been shaped by this, the institutionalization of this free preschool starting at age one. So now it is considered irresponsible. You're considered an irresponsible parent if you don't put your child in a preschool at age one so wow. that the experts can raise the child. So parents in Sweden now literally feel as though they are not qualified to raise their children. What research is showing in Sweden is that the well-being of children on a whole range of measures has deteriorated. We don't know if that's because they of, of, of the, 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 this, this massive expansion of preschool, but there are a number of researchers that think that that kind of institutionalizing kids yeah. in their second year of life has been developmentally damaging. Right. Right. No. And, and I think, you know, you, what you see is on the one hand, this is an interesting place where the, 
the income gap is is clear. I mean, which is to say in in the US, you know, middle upper upper middle class people, you know, who want to, you know, women who want to continue to work are not signing their kids up for institutionalized daycare at one. What they're looking for is a nanny to come to their home. You know, all the things that you were talking about, this this idea of being in the familiar, of being in a small group, exactly. like maybe they'll find a relative to care for that person or they want like at the at the at worst, like a very small group kind of daycare setting yep, with like yep. maybe three or four kids. But yep, the model yep. that we are, you know, becoming proponents of is something much larger, more universal, more institutional, uh, more uniform, um, which is instinctually not what, you know, women who have options would want for their kids. That's right. That's absolutely correct. So I just want to say one quick word about why the results of this study um, are, are maybe different from, from other, other research that's been done. So one of the reactions, big reactions to this study has been, yes, but there's a large body of research showing that pre-K works. So this is an outlier study. What, what, what's important that people understand uh, is how most pre-K research is done. So this study is unusual in that it compared apples to apples. It, it compared parents who, all the children in the study had parents who were trying to get them into pre-K. The way this research is usually done is retrospective. So they'll take a group of kids in 10th grade or fourth grade or, or, or after graduation, and they will find out if that child went to pre-K. And they will then look at the children who had gone to pre-K. This is how they did. The children who had not gone to pre-K, this is how they did. When they find that the children who had gone to pre-K do better, they build in the assumption that they make the claim that it is because of pre-K that these children are doing better. Hmm. And there's one glaring difference between the children who went to pre-K and the children who did not go to pre-K. Pre-K attendance is voluntary. What that means is that if you have gone to pre-K, that means you have parents who had this idea they wanted you to go to pre-K. They had the, the, the sort of the, the wherewithal to take get you to pre-K every morning at nine and somehow get you picked up every day at, at two or three or whenever it is to, to kind of make help you get through the whole year. Those kinds of parents are, on average, we can assume that those are parents who are specially focused on, on, yeah. on their children's education, right? What we also know is that a parent's commitment to and engagement in education is, uh, many researchers have found that that is the single most important factor in, in children's mm -hmm. achievement. And so what you've, when you're looking at two groups of children and you're describing them as this group of child, children went to pre-K and this group of children didn't go to pre-K. And actually a more accurate way of describing this to children, those two groups of children is this group of children had parents who wanted them in pre-K and got them through it. And this group of parents, parent, children have parents who for some reason did not do that. Yeah. Those are not the same kinds of children. 
So we're 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 attributing the, 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 the it, common sense suggests that of those two factors, the kind of parent you have and what that parent is is sort of showing about themselves by the time you're four, and an extra year of school. Common sense suggests that the parent is the more salient factor. So what's peculiar about the way this research is reported is that is not uh, that's not only is that not explicitly considered, it's 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 obscured. And there's been only two major randomized controlled studies, which are again comparing apples to apples, comparing children who have whose parents, you obviously cannot compare children whose parents don't want them to go to pre-K and parent with parents who if all the parents don't want their kids to go to pre-K, you can't have some of the kids going to pre-K. That doesn't work, right? So you can only compare children whose parents wanted them to go to pre-K, but for some reason, part of that group did not get to go. They've done the, they've done the exact same thing with Head Start. They they did a, 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 a large um, long-term study like this. Um, where some parents were able to get their children in successfully, other parents tried, but there were not enough spaces. That Head Start study found exactly what the Tennessee pre-K study has shown. These are the only two studies that have removed the kind of parent you evidently have at age four from the equation. Interesting. I actually read that this, the Tennessee study was actually, they delayed putting it out because there was so much skepticism about its results that the researchers went back over and over and over again to figure out if they were missing something here. So people just don't want to believe this. Although my my favorite Head Start study, I should just mention, suggested that you could get the same benefits as Head Start provided from showing kids Sesame Street once a day, which is a lot cheaper. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to send that one. To you, you have to send that one to me. I have not seen that one. Oh my goodness! So you you can get something out of it, but it, it'll cost you a lot more than than PBS. Anyway, right. Naomi, Naomi, you may want to pivot to the, the other subjects we had talked about, but Catherine, we have to talk. Just we just have to mention the success sequence here because each time you talk about the central factor being parents, the stability yes. of the environment, what happens yes. before, like all of these things. We have to deal with the question of how do we get more kids born and raised in more stable, typically that's found in married to parent households. And, you know, we still have non-marital birth rates in our country of 40% across the board. And, you know, for women 24 and under in 2019, those numbers were 71%. And so how do we think that context you know, applies to what we see in pre-K and shouldn't we talk be talking about helping more young people understand the series of life decisions, education, work, and then if they have children, marriage first, not only are they going to avoid poverty as millennials 97% of the time, but the kids are going to be in environments that are going to be much more conducive to positive human development. Yeah. I mean, being born into a stable um, a stable two-parent family who is relatively prepared to have you is orders of magnitude more important than these various other interventions that we talk about. Now, obviously, when you have children who, through no fault of their own, are born into suboptimal situations, we do need to figure out what's the best way we can help. Of course. Of course. Right? And so that's that that is that's that's essential. 
However, um, you know, it's like it's like having very good treatment for an illness is important. But what's really most valuable is to just prevent people from getting it in the first place. Right. So the, the more the more we can ensure that children are born into, as, as I said, st- you said, stable families that are, are, are relatively speaking, ready to have them. All these other kinds of interventions will would become much less would kind of pale in comparison. Right. I mean, because what I find is we bury the lead um, in a lot of these studies and that we just kind of leap over the importance of family structure. and We get into place based pre-K and all these different variations when and now we're discovering it may not even be effective anyway, on average. Um and not continue to emphasize that the early environment for kids, you know, it's um, uh, and and I I wonder if that's a political thing, like what keep holds people back from restating the obvious. You know what I think it is, and there we have such limited control or limited levers available to impact these things, and. Insofar as we have, we collect taxes and spend them on social programs, right? So that's a whole other discussion. But insofar as that is occurring, right? You have to spend the money on something. You have to spend the money. You can't spend the money on, I mean, you had a background, for example, working at MTV. I mean, there's, there's, those platforms have the capacity to shape these cultural issues. Policy levers don't. However, the kind of, of, of policy that we could and should be spending a lot more time looking at, and, and this, frankly, I would love to talk to you more about this off, offline, um, programs that are successful at enabling families to kind of get themselves together before having children. Because if those programs, this is, by the way, this is, this, if those programs are solid and successful, what needs to happen then is we need to elevate those programs, those outcomes, and essentially launch a campaign in the policy sphere for spending on those programs. So take pre-K. The reason we are talking about pre-K is that about 20 years ago, the Pew Foundation made an institutional decision that their focus was going to be making universal pre-K happen. They ran a 10-year campaign directed entirely at elevating pre-K as a policy option, including, by the way, founding uh, the National Institute for Early Education Research, NEAR, which is now run by Steve Barnett. That is a part of the Pew Project. So an equivalent would be to to found get get some foundation to found a research center that has its whole job investigating these kinds of programs uh, programs that are that are 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 helping young people make good decisions uh, uh, successful decisions in the correct sequence. Um, that's how you would influence policy. The National Institute for Family Structure. Correct. And you have a research 
And you have a researcher whose job it is, frankly, this is an advocacy group, but that's okay, right? Is I, I would prefer that they were a little clearer about that. But, you know, the job of that research center is to show that these kinds of family preparation yeah. interventions work. Right. And I might even call it the National Association of Family Stability. Yeah. That's the ultimate goal. It just so happens that stability is most normally found in a married two-parent household. But you could also widen the aperture and see there, there are situations, not every child in a married two-parent household is stable and, and nurturing. And there are instances where a single parent is doing a great job. So I think, but yes. this seems to be, if we really want to make progress mm-hmm. on human development and child development in the early stages, this is where the attention just needs yes. to be. Yes. All right. Well, for those of our listeners out there with a few million dollars, here is an idea for you. Just contact us uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, whenever yes. you're ready and uh, we, we will appreciate it. But in the meantime, you should follow Catherine's new organization, the Center on Child and Family Policy. And we thank you for joining us for another yes. episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get our podcast on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts.